We do welcome you who are our visitors this morning, some from out of town, and some of you who live near us. We are glad you're here. As Pastor Hill said earlier, we are here to help in any way that we can, and we're not intimidated by your concerns or questions. We would love to hear any, especially any questions that we might be able to answer in helping your soul in knowing God and serving him. This morning, please join me by turning in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. begin to read with verse 35. Though it is a lengthy passage, I wanted us to hear all of it, because some of it we'll refer to later and not take the time at that time to read. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what manner of body do they come? Thou foolish one, that which you yourself sow is not quickened unless it die. And that which you sow, you sow not the body that shall be, but a bare grain. It may chance of weed or some other kind. But God gives it a body even as it pleased him. And to each seed a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one of men... And another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fishes. There are also celestial bodies, and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Howbeit, that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. Then that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is of heaven, as is the earthy. Such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, (coughs) excuse me, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
What he's saying there is, I'm not telling you something that you can't explain. I'm explaining to you something that otherwise you wouldn't understand. A mystery that's now being revealed by the revelation of the Spirit through the Apostle. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We all shall not sleep, or we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now notice here, again, as as we've emphasized in the last few weeks, the things that happen at the same time. At the trumpet, all the dead will be raised. And at that same trumpet, all of us who are alive, we Christians, we saints, will be changed. At the same time that all the dead are raised, so will all the saints be changed. Make sure you understand that. And remember, John chapter 5. When the dead righteous are raised, so are the dead wicked raised. At the same time. The hour is coming when all that are in the tomb shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth, some to everlasting judgment, some to everlasting life. All of them in the tomb will rise at this trumpet, and at that same time, we shall be changed. We who are alive at that time. And this is that generic incorporation, as the apostle calls it, we, as he had to say it since he was then still alive on this world. If the Lord comes while I'm still here, I make up a part of the we. And so that's appropriate language, not guaranteeing that the Lord was going to return in his lifetime, but speaking as one who, if now the Lord came, I would fit that we. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. When shall it come to pass? Then, at the last trump, when the dead rise and we are changed, then shall the saying come to pass that death is swallowed up in victory. And you can refer back over to the earlier part of the chapter in verse 24. Then comes the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. That's the same thing he's talking about. Same subject in the whole chapter. At the resurrection of the body of the saints... Death will then be swallowed up in victory. Death, the last enemy, will then be defeated and put down for the last time. Now, parenthetically, that means that there will not, after this event, ever again be a resurrection of anybody. They all have been raised at this trumpet. There will then never again be anybody in the world who can rebel against God and need to be judged again and die and need to be raised again. They have all met that judgment. They have all risen at that trumpet. There will never be after this trumpet any people on this globe who are mortal, able to die, 
able to be judged by physical death. That has already been done as of this trumpet. Now, do you understand that? Please, dear brethren, understand that when you hear otherwise, remember these texts. Don't be swept off your feet by the fact that thousands of sincere believers have a different opinion. Remember these texts and set yourself on them and find security on them. Verse 55 then continues. O death, where is thy victory? You see the taunt that the saints are able to make against death? We're singing a taunting song to death. Boldly, brashly, looking death in the face and challenging it to give us an answer. Uh, Where is your victory now? You see, that's the confidence the saint has in the power of God and the word of God. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let us bow again and pray. Our Father, we would now submit to you and give to you every contingency of our redeemed humanity and every effect and every cause and everything that sits in this place and ask that you would orchestrate all of it to the end that your Son, through this preaching, may be exalted, his kingdom increased in number and in quality, His people edified, sinners saved, the church built up, and you be pleased. O Lord, direct and take control of every thought and heart. Take captive every motive and organize us and channel us and direct us into that which is according to your will. Give liberty and unction of speech and clarity of truth to your servant and give receptive and aggressive and hungry hearts to your hearers and then satisfy that hunger with riches from Christ. Give understanding, O Lord. Do that which we cannot do. We submit ourselves to you and ask for your mercies, for your fresh application of grace to us unworthy sinners through our Savior, your Son, our, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We hope this morning to conclude a series of sermons that we've been preaching on the subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Son of God soon, and it has been soon since he left, will return to this world in power and great glory. He will come to judge all the unrighteous angels and all unrighteous men and the devil himself. He will come to give blessing and deliverance and liberty from the bondage of corruption to all of his people. 
He will come to be glorified in the saints, to establish in full view of all his creation his righteous and glorious kingdom, which kingdom he will deliver up to the Father and bring in the end of the world. So far, we have learned that the Lord, when he comes, will come supernaturally. It'll be a great cosmic cataclysmic event. All eyes will see him and the whole universe will rock and melt beneath him. He will come bodily and visibly, not invisibly, not secretly, but visibly and bodily so that every eye in the world will see him when he comes and have to deal with him. Even so that many will cry for the rocks and the caves of the hills to fall on them so they can hide from the Lamb and His wrath. He will come suddenly, in the words of the Bible, as a thief in the night when the keeper of the house does not expect anyone to come. He will come, and when He comes, there will be not time to get right and get ready for the coming. He will come upon many unaware, and when they say, Peace, peace, Sudden destruction will come upon them, the same as travail upon a woman with child. And so he says, since he's coming suddenly, since the supernatural elements of the universe are going to explode in his presence, since he's coming visibly to deal with every human being and every angel, we are to watch and to be alert so that we may be prepared and not overtaken by surprise at his coming. We've also learned that his second coming has a distinctive purpose to it. And it is essentially the same purpose for which he came the first time. That is, to save his people from their sins. He came the first time to make a once-for-all sacrifice, to make an offering of himself for the sins of his people. He will come the second time without dealing with sin in the sacrificial sense in order to bring salvation to all those that look for his appearing, according to the book of Hebrews. He is coming the second time to complete what he began when he came the first time. The first time he accomplished our redemption by his death. Then he sent his spirit 50 days later to begin the application of that redemption to the church. And then the next time he is coming personally to finish the application of that redemption which he accomplished the first time, which his spirit has been applying since he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So the nature of his coming is supernatural, bodily invisible, sudden. The purpose of his coming is to complete the work of redemption, its accomplishment and its application. And then we considered and have been studying some of the significant realities connected with Christ's second coming. Some of the things that are identified with that event when he comes, other things that are going to happen at his coming and because of his coming. The first thing that we considered was when he comes again, there will be the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. And the implication that's most pertinent to our generation theologically there is that when he comes that time and fully reveals his glorious kingdom, there will never again in the future be a time when that kingdom will disappear or decline or need or have trouble. 
It's a glorious kingdom that he's showing the world in its full zenith and it'll never wane after that. In short, when he comes, there will not be a thousand more years after that in the human history on this world for that kingdom to suffer violence and have trouble. Because what he's coming to do is to show the final put down of all his enemies, the last one being death, and to give that kingdom in its full accomplished success in its glory to the Father. And that's the end of this age as we know it. The second thing that is associated with his coming, not only the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline, but also the complete renovation of the whole universe with no possibility of further corruption. The liberation of the universe from the bondage of corruption at the time when the sons of God will be made manifest. And that's how we saw it in Second Peter chapter 3. The very elements themselves will melt with fervent heat. And that which is shakable will shake and disappear. That which is unshakable will remain. The Lord Jesus Christ has shaken the old statutes of Israel and one day again will shake the whole world in his coming. And then in the third place, associated with his coming, we have suggested and announced that the Bible clearly teaches, as we've already intimated in our introduction, the final judgment of all the wicked with no hope of subsequent repentance. When Jesus Christ comes back the next time, every sinner throughout the history of the world, including all who are now alive and who are now in the graves and whose dust is scattered wherever they, it has been scattered, will be gathered together at the great Athese and he will judge them finally and there will be no chance after that coming for anybody to repent. That is a vital doctrine. There will be nobody three and a half years later who will now look back on his second coming, which was secret, and begin to think, maybe he is the Messiah, now I'll repent. When he comes the next time, that's it. And any theology which undermines that and gives the subtle inference that you may have a chance to repent after that undermines the very clear declaration of the gospel itself. And is a serious undermining. The final judgment of all the wicked. With no hope of subsequent repentance. In other words, you better get ready for the coming of Christ now. Because when he comes, it's too late to get ready. But in the last place, the things associated with the coming of Christ on which we concentrate this morning. Will be the permanent glorification of all the saints with no fear of future mortality. The permanent glorification of all the saints with no fear of future mortality. We read it in 1 Corinthians 15. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruption must put on incorruption. And when that happens at the last trump, when the Lord comes, then shall the saying come to pass, death, mortality, is swallowed up in victory. 
Now, I want to lead your thinking on this subject this morning along some simple lines. We're going to concentrate on the glorification of the saints at the second coming of Christ. And we're going to concentrate on it if your eyes will stay with me and with your Bibles and stay open. The three or four of you that are struggling, I'm sympathetic, but I'm, I don't excuse it. So work with me and help me so that you'll encourage me not to grow weary while I preach. The simple approach we want to take is, first of all, to consider the scope of the glorification. Second, the essence of the glorification. Third, the purpose. Fourth, the certainty. Finally, some implications. The scope, the essence, the purpose, the certainty, and some vital implications. First of all, consider with me the scope of the glorification that is going to be associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. There have been circulated erroneous rumors among the Thessalonians that their dead loved ones have missed the coming of Christ and therefore have no hope. And there's grief among some of the congregation because they, they're despairing with their Christian loved ones having died and somehow they who expected Jesus to return at any moment in their lifetime, which is a, was a particular expectation of the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians have been led to believe that the coming of Christ was virtually any day now. Paul had to correct that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he said there must first be a great apostasy from the faith and the revelation of the man of sin before the Lord's going to come back. It's not just right now immediately at hand. The apostle, I do believe, expected that departure from the faith in his own lifetime because he did, he did say we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. I don't think he meant 5,000 years later or 2,000 years later, but there has got to be some event in history in the time of this writing that has to happen before Christ can come. Many of us believe that event has happened. The apostasy has occurred. We're living in the days of that great apostasy and that the man of sin has been revealed. But whatever your in interpretation of that, the apostle writes to, co to correct this error in 1 Thessalonians 4 and to comfort saints whose loved ones who were Christians have died. And in verse 13 he says, We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that you sorrow not, even as the rest who have no hope. For, we, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That we that are alive, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall in no wise precede them that have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. The same trumpet, brethren, of 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them, not five weeks later or ten years later, but together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, brethren, this is not an invisible rapture. 
these are dead being raised in new bodies and up into the clouds in the same way that the Lord went up into the clouds with a visible body. This, may I say it, nonsense of a bumper sticker that, that makes light of this event and makes statements like, in case of rapture, take the wheel. This kind of blasphemy from a generation who've been mistaught on this subject grieves the soul of a one that looks forward to this day. As though these movies that are put out, you could see them at the Palace Theater from time to time about the rapture. All of a sudden, multitudes of airlines are going to crash because the pilot disappears. They talk about this on motion pictures that are Christian. What's the problem? They miss the language plane of Scripture. People are going to be raised from the dead bodily, not invisibly. The Lord's going to descend from heaven. We're going to meet him in the clouds. Language is clear. But the point he's making, we which are alive will be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So comfort one another with these words. Who are going to be with the Lord forever when he comes? The scope of the glorification. Who are going to be raised and glorified? All the saints, the dead and the living, God's people who are in the tombs and God's people who have not gone into the tombs yet. All of them. There are none left out here. Oh, dear brethren, it is such a wretched doctrine that would twist the scripture and come up with the concept that after this happens... Some years later, there will be among this world a host of Jewish people or Gentiles who will then repent and later enter the glorious kingdom of Christ. They're all going to be gathered. The scope of this resurrection and glorification, all the saints, dear brothers, you're not going to be left behind. We're all going. When the Lord comes, we're all going. (coughs) We're all going to rise. In the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, this mortal must put on immortality. At the last trump, the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The dead and the living. No hint of any exception at all. All the saints through all the ages. First Christ, then afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. All they that are Christ. Not most of them, all of them who were bound to him in everlasting covenant electing love, who were purchased by him in his death on the cross, who have been given to him by the spirit in effectual calling, all of them will be raised up together. Then in John chapter 6, we remember, we read that the Lord himself said, I've come down not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the will of him who sent me? That of all those he's given me, I should lose none, but should raise them up at the last day. All those he's given me will be raised up at the last day. The scope, clearly from the scripture, is that all the saints will be included in this glorification and this resurrection of glory. We also read Martha, confident in John chapter 9 regarding her brother Lazarus, when she says, I know that he shall rise again 
in the resurrection of the last day. He must rise then because all the saints are going to rise at that day. Everyone who was orthodox and understood God's purposes understood that. It's been perverted and twisted. But there's a final text I want you to look at in Hebrews chapter 11. Before we go to the next point, I want you to understand it. I hope that you who have been subjected to dispensationalism understand the significance of what I'm telling you. We're stating that we don't share those opinions. And we're stating that we have strong biblical reason not to share those opinions. And some of us who used to share those opinions are almost embarrassed that we didn't see these things earlier. If you've not studied that doctrine, that's all right. And maybe you don't even know why we deal with it. And some of you may ask, aren't our people settled on this? Some are, some ain't. I believe I've been here long enough to know that some of you still haven't ground yourself thoroughly and you still are subject to some of the hot books off the press. And I would like to spare you from that. Hebrews 11, verse 39. Speaking of all these who died in faith, all this roll call of faithful men and women in history. Verse 39. And these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing concerning us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what's he saying in that last clause there? There are saints that have died in the past. The old covenant saints, especially in this passage. And it was not God's will that any of them be finally perfected until we are perfected. They, without us, should not be made perfect. They are not yet perfected. They are the spirits of just men made perfect. But they are not the bodies and the spirits of just men made perfect. They have, their salvation has not yet been perfected. Because their salvation also includes their bodies. This mortal must put on immortality. Our salvation has not succeeded. It stopped short of its goal. Sin killed the body. Christ will give it life. Sin was in the body. So is redemption. The Lord does not become a Hindu and bypass the flesh. He's not building a heaven just of the spirits, but of the spiritual bodies resurrected from their dust. In the last day. And the old covenant saints. Apart from us. Will not be perfected. That implies what? That when we are perfected. They will be perfected. All of us. At that day. Will be perfected. It will be finished. The perfect work of salvation. Will reach its glorious zenith. That's the scope of the glorification of the saints. Simply put. Nothing complex about that. Text after text, and we've only cited some, make it clear. When Jesus comes back the next time, it'll be the last time. And all the saints will be glorified. All who've ever lived, all who are currently living, all of them, and all who ever would live. There'll be no more left waiting for a future act of glorification. That hour at his second coming finishes the application of the redemption of his everlastingly chosen people. But second, the essence of the glorification of the saints. 
What actually is going to happen? And we must confess that there is some aspect of it that we cannot explain. I have not seen, nor hath the ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. But he has revealed it to us by his spirit, the apostle says. So there is a re revelation of it. And yet there's still something about it that we would be brash to attempt to describe in detail. Much about it is left for the, for the waiting, is left for the event. But there is much we can say about it, at least in general terms, that ought to give comfort to every one of us. First of all, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 20. Philippians 3.20 reads, For our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall fashion anew the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory according to the working whereby he is able even to subject all things unto himself. We wait for a Savior. There's one thing that we wait for above everything else. We wait for it with certain reasons. We're frustrated and tired of this corruption and all the things attaching to it. We do not believe that this world is our home. We feel visitors. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. Our citizenship is not first United States citizenship, it is first heaven. If we were in the Soviet Union, our message should not change, our conviction should not change, our worship should not change, except as it is forced to by external circumstances beyond our control. But our attitude, our philosophy, our perspective would be identical under a regime of oppressive, unchristian, non-Christian, anti-Christian government. That's why that if this nation becomes anti-Christian officially, we do not have to despair. We will not have to change any of our doctrine or any of our convictions or any of our practices. We may suffer more for them because our citizenship is essentially in heaven. And it's from heaven, not from men, not from this world, not from governments, not from the new world order, that we wait for a Savior. Why? What is it about that Savior's coming that we so wait for and long for? He's going to fashion this vile body of humiliation like unto his glorious body. He's going to fashion it anew. This body, not another, this one. And he's going to take this body, gather all its particles, and refashion it like unto his identifiable glorious body. That's the day for which we long and wait. We never can find it in this world to be feel it, feel it home. I'm thankful God doesn't let that happen. We try. We've tried. And the older you get, the more you'll recognize God has been gracious not to let you fulfill most of your dreams. Your house will never do it. You decorate it. You fix it. You get a tile roof. You get an impervious basement. You get it all the way you've dreamed of it. You do a better homes and garden of it. And you get unlimited resources. And two weeks after you've gotten it, there'll be some plumbing you'll want to adjust. 
There'll be a doorknob that doesn't work. There'll be something that frustrates you. Your septic will back up on you. And Christians are prone to grow frustrated. And, un- and try to understand, Lord, why do you let this happen to us? Haven't we served you righteously? What did we do to deserve it? God does a lot of that stuff just to remind you this is not your continuing abiding place. We wait for a Savior. Now that's what the Scripture is trying to tell us. The essence of the glorification of the saints is the radical transformation of our mortal bodies. There's going to be a, a great thing occur to this body. I call it radical because I don't know what else to call that. It's going to lose its mortality and its corruptibility and it's going to be fashioned like to his glorious body. We could take the time to think back about how his body functioned after the resurrection. And whether you, whatever you debate whether glory had happened to it at that time or later, there was something special about that body. Walking into rooms that, where the doors were sealed and appearing in the room. And then when they thought it was a ghost because he did that, he ate. And that threw them. And then they see him on the seaside making breakfast. And he's sharing some honeycomb and some broiled fish with the fellas. Uh, spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see me have. He's got wounds in his body. You could talk about that and learn a lot from it, but we're going to have a glorified body like to his glorified body. In its principles, in its philosophy, in its concept. The radical transformation of this mortal body. Dear brethren... And this is not the primary goal that I have in my life. But my back won't hurt. My skin won't wrinkle. My eyes will do without these. I will be able to see you without these. And all the multiplied sufferings and pains that we've grown accustomed to in this body. In fact, sometimes when I meditate on this thing, I hardly believe it ever could be possible. I've gotten used to this. I've learned to function like this, and I don't know what it'll be like when I don't have to function like this. When these limits are gone, I don't know what, it, what it'll be like. But that's something that's going to happen, the radical transformation of this mortal body. I can hardly wait to see what the color's going to be. I don't know. I, I think about that. I look across the little mixture here. We've got a little black and a little white and a little yellow tinge in the congregation this morning. And I think about when we get to glory, how's God going to glorify all those, all that variety? He's going to. He's not going to dissolve it. But I, uh, what a wonderful thought. The radical transformation of mortal bodies. We shall be changed, the apostle says in the text we read in 1 Corinthians. The dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be Changed. Well, not all sleep. In other words, not all of the saints are going to die. There are going to be a generation of saints that will still live to the coming of the Lord. But all the saints will be changed. Not all of them are going to go into the grave, but all of them are going to go into glory. Changed. Radical. Not in substance, but in nature. In other words, you're not going to quit being a body. But the kind of body is going to change. He uses the illustration of planting a grain, perhaps of wheat. Well, when you put that grain of wheat in the ground, what has to happen for it to grow a stalk with bunches of grains on it? It has to die. The shell has to fall off. 
and something, the germination has to take place inside. You have to have the temperature, the soil, and the water, and all this just right. And if it's all right, this thing breaks apart, dies, and it's over. That's what you have to commit that to to get a crop. You have to commit it to the ground. You have to be willing to give it its corruption and let it die. Don't clutch the seed in a jar. You'll never get a crop. Don't be afraid to die. Do you hear that? That's a process through which you go to glory. When you get to the dark river, don't stay up. You won't move on through. To some, it's deeper and darker than to others. But to all, it ends in glory. But this seed that's planted, this little germ that's planted, this little, this little grain, what happens? It doesn't show up that way when it comes out of the ground. What do you see poking up out of the ground? A little green thing. A little leaf. And finally a stalk with leaves. And finally a whole, and a whole lot of new little grains like that off the top of that. But it doesn't have the same look that it did. And yet you have no question what that was and what it is. It's the same thing. There's continuity and identity, isn't there? This is that. But all the change. And that's the picture. The glorification of the saints. There's going to be an identifiable continuity between this body and the next body. But all the change. We shall be changed. Our weakness will become strength. We'll have the enlargement of our faculties. Wow. Like unto his glorious body. I don't want to limit God. I don't know exactly, but I have a feeling you'll be able to worship and, and sing in a way you haven't been able to do here. Can you imagine the perfect harmony of this crowd together in glory? So that you who feel that you can't sing can then sing with hold your voice without being afraid you're going to bother somebody else. I have a dear friend in this church who can't carry a tune in a bucket. And he can't kick it out of a paper bag. He knows it, so he doesn't sing very loud. He doesn't want to disturb but people around him. He believes in edification. What a day that's going to be. Whenever he stands there with full voice, right on key. That's just one little thing. The enlargement of our faculties. Exemption from sin and its sorrows. There'll be no night there. No sorrow, no crying anymore. Now, that becomes all the more precious to those who cry a lot here. In fact, it may be the proportion of your weeping here that makes that blessed there. Certainly, as you anticipated, it's more blessed to anticipate if you are a weeper here. And I don't mean weeping over your, over your emotions. I'm weeping over your own self-centeredness. Or I'm not talking about hormonal weeping. I'm talking about the weeping over righteous things. Those that sow in tears shall reap in joy. There's a day when there will be no more sorrow. And isn't it a precious picture in Revelation that the Lord himself will wipe every tear from our personal individual eyes? I mean, what is that going to be like when your Savior takes you personally aside and wipes every tear from your eyes and the cause of every tear? One could even speculate on the absence of tear glands in the glorified body. No tears. At least not the kind of tears that were shed in the sorrows of the consequences of sin in this world. Now you think a minute, so I don't go too fast for you. You think a minute of the things that hurt you here. They won't hurt you there. 
In addition to that, the essence of this glory will mean that we will enjoy the most blessed conceivable fellowship. You are going to sit with the prophets. You are going to sup with Abel. You are going to dine with the patriarchs. You are going to converse with the apostles. You're going to meet the apostle Paul, Peter and John, the lesser known ones. You're going to have intimate daily communion with the martyrs, with the William Tyndales who burned at the stake so you could have an English Bible. You're going to meet him and enjoy the fellowship of such noble men and women. All the silent redeemed of all the generations whom the world was unworthy of and knew not. The little people that you've never heard of, who never wrote a book, who just pastured little flocks or served in a kitchen in a little situation and was faithful to her family and loved God and gave herself to prayer. All the youth who did what their parents said and followed the Lord the best they could and stood up to their uh, enemies at school and took a principal position. You're going to meet all those and have fellowship with them. From the holes and the caves of the earth, they're going to come out in that day multitudes whom the world never knew and of whom it was not worthy. And you'll get to meet them. They shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south and they'll sit down in that great banquet with Abraham while the sons of the kingdom originally. You'll sit down and have the feast of your life, for all of your life, with the sweetest and most blessed conceivable fellowship. The weakness of the flesh, the frustrations of the flesh, death, sin, and all of its accompanying sorrows and frustrations and needs, corruption. Dishonor, it's sown in dishonor. Oh, what a picture it is. What a feeling it is to see a dead body and to watch them lowered into the, into the ground. I, I still believe, brethren, as painful as it is and as mystifying and as difficult as it may be, that our generation in America needs more exposure to real physical death. I think we need to see it more in its reality. And most of us are afraid to see it, and we don't like to even to get near people that are near death because there's something about it we'd like to avoid. But I tell you, the more you see the dishonor, the more you appreciate the honor. And I'm not so afraid of my children hurting and feeling the weight of this dishonorable picture of a body that once was vibrant with breath and smiles and life and vitality, all of a sudden being there decaying before the eye in its pale, white Death. That's a painful thing. And if you've lost a loved one and ever gazed over a casket, it does hurt. And I don't mean to minimize that, nor do I mean to be short about that, nor insensitive to it. Many of us have. But I do mean that that's the, that's the fruit of sin. In fact, the saint can look in grief over the dead body of a loved one and see beyond it and really gain strength in his faith in the very looking at it. It reminds him first of his sin and its result, and it reminds him of the grace of his Savior and the power of his results, and it makes him to rejoice in the face of dishonor. But death is dishonorable. 
What a picture for human beings to, to lie dead. When God gave them life and willed them life and promised them life for obedience. And they forfeited it and they die. It's dishonor. It's sown in dishonor. But it's raised in honor. In glory. All that's going to be gone. No dishonor there. No weakness there. No ugliness there. No deformities there. All perfect. Not all identical. You're not going to lose your individuality and identity. But all perfect and all glorious. That's the essence. But next consider with me the purpose. What is the purpose of God in glorifying the saints? Why are God's people going to be glorified? So that we can have power to fly like some of the cartoon superheroes and gloat in it? Not at all. The thing that makes heaven precious is not superhuman ability that we're going to be given. And the purpose of the glorification of the saints is not primarily to give you powers beyond your wildest imagination. The purpose essentially of the glorification of the saints is to conform us to the image of Christ. To make us like Jesus. And not just bodily. That's part of it. But we cannot discuss this issue of glorification without dealing with a matter of the moral and ethical implications of the glorification. It is in reference to holiness that God is changing us. It is for the purpose of perfecting an ethical image in His Son that God is changing us. Not just giving us body electric, but giving us holy bodies. Making us conform to His Son. We could cite text after text. You're familiar with 1 John 3. Beloved, it is not yet clear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then he goes on to say, since we know that we're going to be like him, he that has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. There's the ethical triggering motivation. Once I understand the end result of my glorification and the purpose of it, that drives me to hasten that day. I want to be like Jesus morally and ethically. I want my attitude conformed to His. I want to share His values. I want to be in conformity with God's law the way my Redeemer is. And I can't do it. I stretch and I fall short. I push and there's a wall. And at my best efforts I flop. And the promise of glory is that one day I shall not flop. I shall stand in conformity, blameless, without spot, without blemish, in the image of my Savior. That's the purpose of the work. It's the finishing of the work of salvation. God will not stop until he's done the whole trick. God is going to remove the last vestige even of the memory of sin from you. That's unimaginable in me. And if it weren't in the scriptures, I couldn't believe it. Just as I'm acquainted with this broken down body and I'm learning to function with this. I'm acquainted with a broken down heart. And I've learned to function as a sinner. I expect it. I know that I go through a day. And I'm going to have to, at the end of the day, have a long list to confess. 
I've grown a pattern and a habit. I, I need that habit. My devotionals are sprinkled with confession and grief over my own sins. There'll come a day that won't be. Whatever we do in our devotions, in the presence of God, there'll be no sin to deal with. That ought to be enough to make you want to go to heaven. In fact, if you're a Christian, that is what makes you really want to go to heaven. And if you don't want to go to that, that's evidence you're not a Christian. If that doesn't appeal to you, your heart hasn't been changed. The scriptures are clear. Romans 8. He who chose us also predestinated us, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. We're going to have a body like his. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not conformed to this world, but his. Because one day, we're going to be made like him. That's the essential purpose of the glorification of the saints. But let me quickly add the certainty of it. In case you once in a while wonder if it's really going to happen. There are some strong, encouraging, strengthening arguments from the Scripture that will solidify your confidence. Now, if you don't think about it much, if you don't look for these promises much, if you don't spend any time on this, you're going to have a tough time believing it's ever going to happen. You're going to live your life as though it's not. I submit to you that the reason most of the men and women around us are living like there's no heaven is because they don't believe there is. And the reason that this world is all they have, that's why they steal and kill and lust They want all they can get as quick as they can get it because they're afraid that it's not going to last. They're pretty sure it's not going to last. Stock market. A little blurb on a news report sneaks out and somebody hears a half a sentence and the market goes up 75 points. Everybody goes bananas because they're they're living for this world and whatever. Quick profits we can make now. Get it now. Grab what you can get. Go for all the gusto you can. You only go around once in life. That's mentality. Now, how do you get rid of that? How can you not love this world? How can you free yourself from this world agitating you and shoving you and yo-yoing you and ripping you apart and having you worried and fretting all the time? You get it settled in your mind that you're going to be glorified and it's all going to be yours. All the inheritance of light and all the blessings of God are yours and you get it settled that you're not going to stay here. You're going to end up there and it'll do a lot toward getting the world out of your system. And I'm convinced that to the degree that men are confident that this day is going to happen when they're going to be glorified and made like their Savior, to that degree and to that proportion, they're faithful in pursuing heavenly things and eschewing worldly things. Let me list some of the reasons that it's a certainty. The purpose of election. When God chose to save men, He has chosen you from the beginning unto salvation through belief of the truth and the sanctification of the Spirit, God has chosen to save you, to save you from the wrath to come, to save you from sin, to make you holy. Electing love has as its base purpose, its basic purpose, to save that which was lost. God from eternity has purposed to save you from your sins and its results. Its power its consequences. Shall God fail to fulfill the purpose of his electing love? It's one of the reasons why we must insist on continuing to preach loudly and frequently the doctrine of God's sovereign election. 
Because when men think that God is waiting on them to determine the future and is dependent on their choices to work out the future and is unable to determine himself the future, they are left to no hope. But when they know God's got the future planned, God has worked it all out, God in his sovereign godness has chosen what he's going to do to save his people, they have security. Well, Lord, you've said, you chose me for this. You can't possibly stop now. But second, not only the purpose of election, but the gift to Christ. Remember the Lord in John 6, verse 37 through 39. He says, all those the Father has given me shall come. And all those he's given me, I'll lose none, but I'll raise them up at the last day. God gave people to Christ and gave him the charge to secure their salvation and raise them up at the last day in glory. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is his will that I raise you up at the last day. God gave you to me. It's my business. It's my job. It's my task. Has Christ uh, ever failed? He cannot fail. The gift to Christ. Not some puny Savior over in the corner hoping you'll help him and get saved. But an almighty Savior who will see to it that all those given to him from eternity by his Father will rise up at the last day. Dear brother... Dear sister, if you love Christ and wait on Christ and trust in Christ with all your failure, with all your struggle and weakness, fresh on your conscience, if you look to Christ away from yourself and wait on Him, you'll rise in the last day. You're going to make it because He's not dependent on you. What an absurdity to think that God needs me to raise me from the dead. What complete foolishness for God to depend on my free will for anything. The very ultimate end of it, I'm going to be lying there dead. I'm dependent on Him there, just as I was the first time He raised me from the spiritual dead. And just as surely as He raised you from the spiritual dead, He's going to raise you from the physical. Take your ease, brethren. Rest in this. Quit worrying about this. Embrace the promise of God through the gift he gave to his son. Christ has to fail for you not to rise. God's electing purpose has to be frustrated for you not to rise. Third, the union with Christ is a certainty of our resurrection and glory. They that sleep in Jesus... Why must this mortal put on immortality? Because this mortal has been united with Christ. We'll not turn to it, but in Romans chapter 6, it's made clear. If we were buried with him in the likeness of his death, if we were planted together with him, united with him, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Just as surely as you were united to Christ by faith in, his, in, in the Spirit, so surely you're going to be in him in the resurrection. You see, the thing that guards, guarantees that those little particles of dust blown out there in the universe by a bomb of his saints are going to be brought together is that every particle of that dust is united to Christ. You say, I don't see that. Well, let me go a step further. The fourth certainty, the redemption of Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we were bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your spirit and in your bodies, which are Christ's. We are united 
with Christ in our bodies. He died to save your body. His blood was shed for your body as well as for your soul. For you. That's why you'll rise when the day comes. You're not united to him. The sanctification of the Spirit also provides certainty. It is the glory of his successful work. God has chosen you from the beginning unto salvation through belief of the truth and the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God will not fail to bring us to that hour and finish the work of the application of redemption. He is given to us. He will abide with us. He'll, he'll present us to God, the Father and the Son, at the appropriate hour in the appropriate shape. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Also, in case that doesn't help you, God has promised it, brethren. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God has made his promise. God's word is on it. And dear brethren, the universe will melt down a long time before God's word fails. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not. But there's one other little thing that I thought of to add to this list of certainties. Not only the purpose of election, the gift to Christ, the union with Christ, the redemption of Christ, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the promise of God, but the present foretaste of glory that we experience builds security and confidence in the final fruition of it. Before they went into the land of Canaan, they had clusters of grapes brought to them, and they tasted the fruit of the land before they got, in, got there. Have you not tasted something of the fruit of Beulah? Have you not had some of the clusters of Eskel brought to you? And have you not tasted some of the sweet wine of heaven in this world? When you come together and hear the word of God preached and the spirit of God draw near to your soul and the power of God affect your life and the fellowship of God's people cause you to rise up and exalt. And sometimes when you're singing, you almost think you know God standing there with you. And sometimes in your closet as though the Lord Jesus himself is present and you taste a bit of that fellowship that's going to be perfect in heaven. Sometimes haven't you tasted it? There are grapes there. We brought a brought a sample of them here before you get there just so you'll know they're there and it's worth taking go on believe and have courage and take the land the Lord will be with you There's, it's worth the taking it's a land flowing with milk and honey don't grow weary don't stop at Kadesh Barnea and disbelieve what you've been told it's all there it doesn't look like it here and the giants before you before you can get it you've got to beat down giants and sometimes you can't hardly even hold your own weapon. But God will fight for you. Giant despair. Doubting castle. Apollyon himself. The dark river. The valley of the shadow of death. The slough of despond. Have you been to any of those? If you haven't, you will. But the Lord will fight for you. Be strong and of a good courage. Neither be thou dismayed. The Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do to me.
It's a certain thing, dear brethren. Release all your thoughts of needing anything this world has. And all your efforts to make sure you don't lose any of it. Forget that. Look what you've got. Look what you'll never lose. Don't forfeit what God's promised and secured for something that's going to pass away. This world and the lust thereof are passing away. But he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Well, I want to draw implications. You can see we can go a long way with this subject. And then there's limits on what we can do with it. There's a value to this subject. First of all, obviously, it makes great encouragement in the midst of trial and loss. Doesn't it? Some of you, even while you've heard me preach, have thought about your job and your boss and what you griped about yesterday and you've been freed in one hour. Just, just one sermon. Just a little, little scratching the surface of the subject and you've thought, oh, what was I worried about? Oh, I need to hear this. I know what some are going to say as they come through the foyer. Because I know what I, what I felt. I know what I heard when I prepared it. A great encouragement in trial and loss. Your loved ones die in the Lord, they'll rise in the last day. You sick, it's not final. It may be the sickness unto death, but it's not the last thing. You're going to rise in health and vigor. Not only does it encourage you in trial and loss, this doctrine stimulates to moderation and health. If Jesus died for this body, I ought to take care of it. If God watches over the dust of this body and he plans to resurrect it and show his glory in it, I shouldn't throw it aside easily. I shouldn't fatten it with laziness. I should guard it. I should keep its blood flowing as best I can. I'm a steward of property that belongs to God at the purchase of the blood of his son. God's going to raise this body from the dead. Why? So that you don't have to worry about taking care of it now? No, because he loves this body. He highly values this body. He made this body. You better take care of it. It's sin for us not to take care of our bodies. Dear brethren, is there testimony in this room in your conscience that you have not valued what God gave his son to die for? Let's get ourselves healthy. Not worry about the newest weight loss plan so that we can look neat in the mirror, but get ourselves in shape so we can reflect the glory of a saving purpose of our Redeemer. This doctrine is valuable also because it cures the fear of death. And when when you get a grip on glory, death just can't bother you anymore. And once you are free from the fear of death, there is no fear that can get you. The men that have lost their... It's one of the reasons that Christians in history have been some of the greatest warriors in battle. They're not afraid to die. Not ultimately. And that's been the testimony of some generals who have said some of their Christian underlings have displayed immense courage. It's not unique to Christians, but Christians make good soldiers. They're responsible... They have a sense of ethics and and honor, and yet, ultimately, if they have to die, they don't suffer great loss. You know what I thought about this week, and I think it's the Apostle Paul's spirit in Philippians 1, about the only reason that a godly man or woman desires to stay in this world is a sense of duty. 
The apostle said, I would love to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But because it's needful for you, I think I'm going to stay. There was no other reason to stay here. And let me ask you to do this in your conscience this morning. If there's anything in this world for which you hope the Lord will delay his coming, other than your sense of duty to him, you need to rid your mind of it quickly. Because it is hindering faith and obedience, sanctification and the glory of God. Said, Pastor, I got some real dreams. I, I wanted to have kids. It's not your moral duty to have kids. It is a high privilege. And if you have them, you have moral duties. But don't cling to this world so you can get some kids. Trust a bit of the earned wisdom of an experienced father. That does not challenge heaven. I want to get married, and I just want to know what it's like to be loved by somebody. Oh, my dear friend, you're going to be put into glory by someone who loves you so much that married love is nothing beside it. Unless there's a sense of duty, of directions from Christ, and you feel that if you were to leave, it might leave some other people without some God-ordained needs and supply then you should long to get to heaven. So your only thing to hesitate you ought to be, Lord, it might be more needful for me to stay here for a time to fulfill these needs. Some of us who are daddies and mummies feel that. And I confess to you that in my times of prayer when I want to go to heaven and I think about it, the only thing that makes me hesitate is my concern for my wife and my children. And sometimes, though not nearly as much, my concern for the church. If I were the only pastor, I'd have even more concerns for that. It's not that I don't think God could replace me. That's not the point. It's just that sense of duty that he has put me in a place and I would like to know that there's going to be someone in that place as a daddy and a husband when I leave. The Lord will meet their needs. So that even, even that doesn't make me argue, but it's the only thing that gives me pause. And I think it ought to be the only thing that gives us pause. You lose your fear of death. But last... I just want to let you think a minute about how vital the doctrine of the sovereign God is. Dear brethren, this is not something that, well, some Christians believe in Calvinism and the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, and some Christians don't. It's not that big a deal as long as they're happy. But you see, if you work out the implications, if God's not in control, everything I preach this morning falls down. I have no confidence in any glory in the future. I'm left to the free will of man. If God cannot save at the beginning any time he pleases, how can he save at the end? If God could not save me at the beginning without my help, what's he going to do to get me out of the grave? Oh, well, God's almighty. Oh, has he changed since he first saved me? Was he not almighty then, but somehow I've assisted him and now with my dead bones helping him, he can raise me? I'm saying to you that of the most vital essence are the doctrines which make some churches in this society unique. The doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of a powerful God who saves whom he will, when he will, how he will, every time he wills. You poor dead sinner, you're just as dependent this morning on God's saving grace to awaken you to life and faith 
as we all are on the day when our bodies are going to be lying in the grave needing somebody to raise them. And the fact that you don't understand what I just said is ample evidence that what I said was true. The world will soon know the fact that the world's history has largely been in the hands of the prayers of God's people. It's the final application I want to make. I want you to think about it. The world doesn't understand that most of the wars of history have been determined by the prayers of God's people. They have no idea who's been praying during this war in the Persian Gulf. They're not going to give you any press time. Wednesday night prayer meeting in this place and others is not going to... That's not changing any. That's just people trying to find comfort. And I read an article. There's a lot of people going to church now that weren't going to church. You know why? Because they're trying to find some comfort. But isn't it a bit helpful to know that we didn't change our church attendance habits after the war started? You know why? We don't come here just to get feeling a little brief respite. And as soon as the war's over, we don't have to come again. We're here to do business. We're to worship God and fight his enemies. We're here to pray. We're here as priests to bring down things in the world that the political powers of the world can't touch. And your prayers are carrying out world history. Your prayers mingled with the intercessions of Christ at the throne of the one who has the seals of history in his hands and is working out all the affairs of the kings of this earth. One day the world in your glory will see it. They don't think you're worth much here. Your faith is not noticed, but in glory it will be. Your faithful prayers, your striving for things the world didn't see and didn't care about will one day be magnified, and then the earth will be silenced in all of its criticism. They'll understand that the Lord Jesus, through his people, produced, Christian hist- produced history. History is the story, largely, of the secret lives and prayers of God's children. And when the world sees you glorified, they're going to see for the first time that all of this has been going on has been a father granting his children their requests. And we do know from history that much that happened in World War II was the direct results of some Christians praying in Europe. Some Christians who took on themselves to stop Hitler at a time when he was planning to go right down through the Caucasus and right on down into Israel. And some Christians got together in Wales, probably in other places in the world, but they've testified and they prayed. And Hitler, I've forgotten whether it's Leningrad or Stalingrad, I think it was Stalingrad, stopped. And many historians have had difficulty understanding why he stopped. There was a point in the war when he could have marched on. He stopped and took on the wrong fight and made a fool of himself. That's just one illustration, but I tell you, there's coming a day when there's going to be opened up to the view of the whole universe, the history of the world, sprinkled with the prayers of God's people and his answer to those prayers, and they're going to stand astounded that the people they persecuted and snubbed were the key to their history. May God speed the day when the glory of his purpose will be seen in the world and his people glorified in their Savior, and the world finally know what the day they deny. Not so we can gloat but so God can be vindicated. Dear brethren, I trust that there have been some helps and comforts to you, but I also hope that if you are not in Christ this morning and you haven't gotten it settled, that you belong to the Lord Jesus, that you'll take vital, seriously, crucially, my exhortation to you in the name of Christ to turn from your sin 
and your love of this world and run to the Savior who soon will come and judge all men and glorify saints. Let us not wait, but be prepared for the Son of God. If you came in this morning thinking that you were going to do a little religion and then go your way, I trust that God has arrested you in your tracks. I trust that you understand we preach what we know. We preach what you need to hear. And you need a Redeemer. And God has provided him in Christ. Do not shun him or delay. Run today and fall at the feet of one whom you've offended. And allow his privileged saving to take place in your life. Submit to him. Lay claim to his promised mercy. And save yourselves from this untoward and crooked generation. Forget all the stuff it's going to cost you for a minute. It'll cost you. But don't let that stop you from coming. Don't worry about what your family is going to say. Don't worry about this is new to you. You don't understand the power that's come over you. Run to Christ. Obey the instincts of your convicted heart. And free yourself from your sins. And from the wrath to come. Let us pray. Our Father, we still are amazed that you would in mercy have answered our prayer and helped us preach. We thank you. And we thank you for the word that we've been privileged to announce to your people and to the strangers. Our Father, we do pray now that your Holy Spirit may apply that word unto the saving of sinners. And to the building up of a church in righteous purpose and motive and freeing us from our love of this world. Remove from us, O Lord, by strengthening our faith, the fear of death. That we may live godly and holily and righteously in this present world. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may we live in accordance with that hope in the meantime. O Lord, give us grace in this place. Get us out of our lethargy. Awaken us and make us zealous for your kingdom. We would pray along with the great apostle who concluded the scriptures. O Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.